Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today I'm joined by Professor Philip Dre, who is the author of several books that focus on American cultural and political history. He wrote one book on Benjamin Franklin's scientific endeavors entitled Stealing God's Thunder. He also wrote a book on There is Power in a Union, the Epic Story of Labor in America. Another of his books, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America, won the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He has been a recipient of generous support from the National Endowment of the Humanities and the New School School Faculty Research Fund. He is also a fellow of the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU. Professor Drake also serves as a professor in the New School, of, as a journalist professor in the New School. Today, we will be discussing his new book, Lynching at Port Jarvis, Race and Rec- Reckoning in the Gilded Age. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Drake. Thank you for having me. So, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Well, it's a kind of a micro-history of a town in upstate New York called Port Jervis, which was uh, a canal town, basically, and also later a big railroad junction in western, uh, lower western New York in the 19th century. Uh, It had a population of about 10,000 people, uh, has small black population, about 200 people only, um, and uh, my book is basically about an incident that occurred there on June 2nd, 1892, when uh, through a series of misunderstandings and a confused uh, romantic relationship, which we only slightly understand what went on, um, a black man named Robert Lewis, um, a well-known person in town, a 28-year-old man who worked as a teamster driving a wagon for a local hotel, uh, was uh, lynched by a mob of 2,000 people uh, based on the accusation that he had sexually molested Lena McMahon, a young white woman popular in the town, um, as she sat reading a book by the riverside. Uh, and from this incident uh, came a huge uproar or outrage, really, because uh, it was at a time when lynching was uh, at epidemic levels in the American South, the lynching of African Americans. Uh, is uh, they were lynchings, recorded lynchings were occurring virtually every other day in the South from Virginia to Louisiana. And um, it was unusual to have a lynching occur in a, a, a small northern town, one that was only 65 miles from New York City. And so it set off a kind of national uh, outcry. What is happening? How could this southern scourge be coming here to the north? Uh, what about, you know, we are the we're a place of law and order. And 
course, local people in New York City and around Port Jervis immediately said, unlike the South, we will make sure whoever did this is held responsible by law. But of course, they couldn't. The same thing happened in the North that happened in the rural South, which was neighbors would not testify against neighbors. The white community kind of closed ranks and uh, no one was ever uh, uh, indicted for the crime. And so it was a kind of a a, sh- a moment of shame, scandal, and new revelation about wh- who the North, what the North was becoming uh, in the modern age, and and so on. And of course, we see it's the echoes of it. Of course, are still very much with us today. Now, I want to ask you about what you did. It's, your book is so well written, um, and I really enjoyed it. How difficult was the research and writing process for the book? Well, the um, initially, uh, the book, it's funny because when you write books, as any author will tell you, the book itself, the writing of it has a kind of a lifetime. And this one was similar in that when I began work on the book in 2018, people in Port Jervis were very resistant to talking about the lynching. Many of them, in fact, had never heard of it. It had been so buried in the kind of local oral history, if you will, uh, that many, many people didn't even know what had happened or had never heard of this incident. Those who did kind of know about it were very reluctant to talk about it. And so at first, it was hard going. All I could go on really were the old local newspapers from the time, you know, in those days before radio and TV, um, small even small towns had often multiple newspapers. And of course, they covered this case extensively, even though they were not able or did not want to reveal all that they knew for fear of maligning the virtue of a young white woman and so on. Uh, there was a lot of information in those newspapers. But what happened was when I talk about the lifetime of the writing of a book is, of course, the summer of 2020 came and happened with the murder of George Floyd, uh, Black Lives Matter protests all over the country. The one that they call the you know largest social movement in American history, and Port Jervis was no exception. There was you know it's a small town and very conservative with a very small black population. Nonetheless, Black Lives Matter staged a huge march and rally in the town, at, which was peaceful and was awesome to see. And I was there and it, people were, it was sort of unbelievable in a way because no one would have expected it just a year or two before. But my point is that that changed everything. Then the culture of the town, uh, you know, the kind of white, the white uh, elders of the town, the aldermen and the mayor and so on, I think kind of woke up to the idea that this was something they needed to respond to and and honor. And so in that atmosphere, a more openness about the lynching came forward. And so to long story short, what happened is the state of New York stepped in and agreed to actually put up uh, a plaque uh, showing where the lynching had occurred, explaining it, uh, there's a essay writing contest for high school students in the town now about Robert Lewis, who was the victim of the lynching and so on. And so everything in a way has shifted in terms of acknowledging this part of the town's past. And I think that happened not through my efforts so much as just the nature of the culture at the time. 
It has changed now. So I want to ask you, like, so my listeners can understand and give them some historical context, and this is a subject that you know a lot about, um, how and what, how and when lynching began? So how does it, you know, just the whole idea of, well, not idea, of lynching the practice, when did it begin? Um, so listeners can understand what it is and, you know, kind of, get the context of everything that we're going to talk about. Well, it's, it's a, of course, lynching actually, it's derived from the name of a man named Charles Lynch, who was a white uh, magistrate in colonial Virginia, who during the Revolutionary War took it upon himself to punish Tories who came into his, into his uh, wheelhouse, so to speak, for various crimes. And of course, they were accused of being disloyal to the revolution and so on and he would have them flogged. Um, and after the Revolutionary War, some of these same people who'd been punished by Judge Lynch sued him and said he had no right, no legal right to have done that. Well, the Virginia legislature heard the case and decided that, yes, he did in the, in the sort of upheaval of the revolution, he did have the right to kind of a claim that he was in charge and to issue punishments for these disloyal Tories. Hence, lynch law became a synonym for a kind of uh, summary justice, basically. In other words, justice that is not done through the courts or through any formal process, but rather administered casually, ad hoc, spontaneously, or even by design. But that it's not, it's extrajudicial, in other words. Um, and so, of course, it flies in the face of the rights of due process and one's constitutional civil rights and so on. Um, for many years in the early 19th century, lynching referred to non-lethal shaming uh, punishments, tar and feathering, uh, driving somebody out of town or carrying them there or whatever. And that was the origin of that phrase, being ridden out of town on a rail. You would tie someone to a fence post and carry them to the outskirts and tell them not to come back. After, it was after the Civil War, though, of course, in the kind of cauldron of Reconstruction in the South, that you saw lynching take a turn, uh, a much more lethal turn, in it because, of course, of the resistance among Southern whites to the newly freed and newly mobile, in many cases, uh, black population, and so it became it became more deadly and. Eventually, over during Reconstruction, which of course was there were many, many murders really of freedmen and freed people uh, that were not recorded at all. Uh, we see beginning in the 1880s the beginning of recorded lynchings that newspapers were beginning to account for. And there's a kind of a strange irony there, which is that lynchings were always meant to be forgotten, they were meant to be something that's not recorded, there's no trial, no t lawyers, arguments, or anything like that, no verdict. So what happened, though, is the newspapers seized upon these events when they could document them as kind of as, as titillating and scandalous news. And so what there were were reams of copy about these incidents, about lynchings, in that the newspaper accounts, needless to say, most of this came from white controlled newspapers, nonetheless formed the basis of a lot of what we know about recorded lynchings during that era. In fact, the Tuskegee lynching archives, Tuskegee being a black university in, the, in Alabama, 
quietly was collecting these newspaper clippings for decades and decades so that when I came to write about lynching in, in the, near the end of the 20th century, this huge volume of these clipping, newspaper clippings was there in the archives. And of course, it was suggested right away to me that this lynching was not some occasional aberrational thing that just happened for God knows what reason, but rather a, a, an institutionalized pogrom of terror that reigned for many, many years across the South and with numbers that were staggering. As I mentioned a minute or two ago, in 1892, the recorded high point, uh, there were 162 lynchings of African-Americans, which again is really about one every other day, really. And that type of level of statistic pertained for many, many years. Not You don't really have until the early 1950s a year without a recorded lynching in America. So if this gives you some background, uh, at least the, certainly the context for what happened in Port Jervis in 1892, which was the very height of this kind of national awareness that there was this, this brutal barbaric crime that was being carried out. And here it was suddenly it spreading into what seemed to be kind of the home of, uh, you know, what was perceived at the time to be a more civilized part of America. And hence this, this panic arose. Right. And it's interesting, you know, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about, you know, Port Jarvis in the 19th century, you know, it's an overwhelmingly white community, as you noted earlier, and, you know, there's a small African-American population. So, you know, as I was reading, I was thinking, you know, Everyone pretty much knew who Robert Lewis was for the most part. It wasn't that he was a stranger that just walked through the town. No, he was known in the community. So it was kind of, you know, it was like that was like that jarring glimpse of it, um, of how these events, which we're going to get to and talk about. So let's talk about the main characters. So there's kind of, I see like this, there are three that are looming large in my mind right now. Um, Lena, Philip, and Robert Lewis. There's like, so first let's talk about who was Lena and who was Philip um, and how that kind of sets up the stage in some ways where Robert Lewis unfortunately came into the mix of that. Yes. Okay. Well, Lena McMahon was a 22 year old, uh, local woman um she was the at that time the only child living at home still with her parents uh her father was a a a veteran of the civil war um and she and her mother together uh ran a, a sweet store a candy and ice cream store uh right in a, a neighborhood in the north part of Port Jervis. She had grown up in the town. She was very well known. She was known for being sort of a what they called a belle of the town. She was very attractive, very charming person and well-liked as far as I know. Uh, she also was known a little bit for being kind of high strung. Uh, she had been adopted as a child out of an orphanage in New York City. And that, whether that had some there's there was always something a little mysterious about her um she had was sort of prone to kind of fits of forgetfulness and somewhat erratic behavior despite all her many charms um philip foley was uh, so into this mix comes philip foley who was an out-of-town insurance salesman and apparently very dashing looking uh he was 
older than Lena, uh, maybe by 10 years or so. Um, he came to Port Jervis on business and hung around and was introduced to Lena. Uh, initially, her family supported the idea that they would that he would court her. He seemed like a handsome fellow and you know, came from the big city and so on. But it soon turned out that he was sort of a like a, a kind of a, a, a grifter. He didn't pay his hotel bill. He was seen consorting with sort of, you know, sort of characters from like the sort of saloon strip in Port Jervis. Uh, remember, Port Jervis is a tough railroad town. It has uh, a sort of a kind of a garden community where kind of, you know, quote unquote, the better people live. But it also had a kind of rough hewn section down by the railroad that uh, and so Foley was sort of associated with that. He liked to gamble and so on. Well, when Lena's parents learned of this, they kind of soured on the relationship and forbade her from seeing him anymore. Well, of course, that set the stage for the two lovers to then embark on a on a, um, a secret relationship where they would rendezvous with one another, sending messages through friends and other people Um and eventually led to the, what led to the lynching itself was that Alina at one point fell out with her parents so severely that she ran away and went to New York City, then came back. And she and Foley were actually sleeping rough. They were, they were sleeping out by the side of the river at night. It was a summer, you know, so they could sleep outside, but still she was, you know, it was, it was scandalous. So it, in itself that she had, disobeyed her parents uh, in an age when that itself was seen as a, you know, unwelcome form of rebellion. Young white women were beginning to leave home, go to school and refuse to stay on the farm, so to speak. Um, So there was an air of difficulty and trouble already. Somehow into this mix of the two young lovers kind of on the lam trying to decide what to do, uh, Robert Lewis um, was Apparently, it's again. It gets very confusing because Lena McMahon changed her account of what occurred many times, and other people too are not really. It's hard to know who to trust. The newspapers themselves at the time, although largely sympathetic uh, to her, um, well, really because they were so sympathetic. Basically, you could tell they were withholding things they knew about it. In other words, it's very frustrating for a historian like me in researching these news accounts. Literally, you get to the end of an article where the newspaper writer has put, there's something very strange about this case, and it's almost like we don't really know what happened. End of story. And of course, when you're a historian 130 years later reading this, you're thinking, no, no, go find out what happened. (laughs) I mean... You know, this was an age when there was no police investigation. The local police were basically just moonlighting dentists and butchers and blacksmiths who just mostly were hired to kind of make sure the drunks got off the street late at night and went home. You know, you can imagine it's a small town. Everyone knew everybody else. They were not there. Were, there were no detectives. They were not going to, like, look into anything. And, of course, that proved to be when the lynch mob gathered the 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 weakness of the police force, or not really their weakness, just the character of it, came to be a very important factor because, of course, the police force was small. These men were not trained in like law enforcement techniques, and certainly not in riot control or anything of that nature, and so they were easily overwhelmed 
I mean, some of the police had their batons taken away by the mob and beaten themselves with their own batons. Some of the police did perform very courageously. I mean, it's amazing to read about that a few of them literally on their own tried to stand up to hundreds of of people trying to get at Robert Lewis and harm him. So, but nonetheless, this is how it all kind of went down. There was a, a misunderstanding or various reports that Robert Lewis had accosted Lena McMahon by the riverside on a, a noon, uh, on a hot summer day, early summer day, June 2nd, 1892. Um, and when word of this got out, you know, it's lynchings take various forms and students of lynching refer to the Port Jervis lynching as what they call a spontaneous vigilantism. In other words, it was not a design. It wasn't like a conspiracy. It happened spontaneously. Word got out and there was, you know, Lena was the daughter of an Irish Civil War vet uh, who was very well liked in the town. The town was filled with many Civil War veterans. Um, and there had just been a few days before a big Memorial Day celebration in which there were all these kind of patriotic speeches by other war veterans and a kind of rousing and a lot of, you know, some drinking went on, obviously. And this only 48 hours later, suddenly there's this report that the daughter of an Irish war vet has been accosted by a black man. And as you know, there had always been a kind of um, tension between Irish Americans and the uh, the draft during the Civil War. The idea that immigrants who were barely making a foothold here in this country were asked in huge numbers to fight what they called the Negroes War. Uh, it wasn't held that, I can't, I don't mean to imply that that attitude was held by all Irish Americans, but there was a, a, a sense of resentment. And so it's hard, while well, in any lynching, it's always difficult to pinpoint precisely what factors instigate it. Uh, just like we saw any kind of mob violence, for instance, I mean, just to step away a moment, look at January 6, 2021, an incident which we've all seen on video and et cetera, even however many times we look at it, it's still difficult to understand how on earth did this, how could this have happened, this level of brutal medieval violence occur. And it, it's sort of the same, it's the same in many other instances of mobs violence that once a spark is lit, a mob is very hard to reverse or deter and people get swept up. Uh, not, you know, there's some key players who are the most violent and determined. Many other people are just curious. They want to see what's going to happen. They're, they're yelling encouragement. Others are just watching. They're amazed or whatever, but they're still, they're not going to go away. They're going to stay. So that's pretty much what happened. Uh, word got out, a mob, a posse went after Robert Lewis and captured him. Initially, they did try to turn him over to the police so he could be locked up for his own safety, but that lasted all of about 30 seconds. The mob overpowered the police, tore him away, and marched him up uh, the original plan was to march him up to Lena's house so that she could identify him, but they never got that far. They got only up about three quarters of the way, the corner of Main Street in Ferguson in Port Jervis. Uh, and despite the attempted intervention of some very brave people, a judge, a priest, uh, the mayor of the town, some policemen, as I mentioned before, 
to intervene, uh, they were incapable. They could not stem the ferocity of the mob. And Robert Lewis was lynched before about 2,000 people. You know, and it's, you know, it's so interesting that you say that this was like that spontaneous, you know, it wasn't planned out. There was no thought to this. It was just once it started, as you say, it couldn't be stopped. There was no way to tamp this. You've got 2000 people. How are a few going to go up against that to stop this? Um, Because at that moment, this was the justice that they wanted to enact. And that's how they thought they would be able to do it. So I want to ask you that after Robert Lewis, now, was he given a chance to actually speak or did he, you know, talk or did he, you know, defend himself about anything or say, that wasn't me. I didn't do it. Um, What's very interesting. It's interesting you ask that because, of course, there were and then there were again there are different accounts. But the posse that arrested him claimed that on the ride back into the town, he said to them, "Oh, go talk to Lena's father, and we'll, we'll clear this whole thing up." Basically, which was, of course, a very enigmatic thing to say because it's very unusual that he would do that. Uh, he also claimed that he had been put up to some assault on Lena by the white boyfriend. Again, which we have uh, the white boyfriend himself always denied that, and as Lena did as well. So there's some mystery there. Um, in addition, once Robert Lewis was in custody, so to speak, in the custody of the mob, um, he, of course, recognized many of the people who were surrounding him and, and beating him. And he pleaded with them by name, you know, Tom, Bob, S- Steve, what are you doing? Like, it's, you know, I didn't do anything. I, whatever. I mean, he was, he was, proclaiming his innocence. Uh, but again, not enough people, you know, a few people heard him out and did try to to help him, but it was they themselves were then uh, chased away. I mean, the mayor of the town, you know, famously the crowd grabbed him and took his hat and pushed it down over his head and said, get out of here, don't come back. <laughs> and he's he's supposed to be, he's the, the, the you know, nominally the sort of, the you know, the leader of the community. So, that's how up, up uh, how much uproar there was and how little chance there was of any kind of intervention or, or, or dialogue. Right, to stop this. And so I want to ask you, after the lynching, you know, did it spark national outreach? Because as you mentioned early on and, you know, you talk about in your book, you know, there is lynching is happening pretty much everywhere, especially in the South at this time. And so... You know, did the lynching at, you know, Port Jarvis, did that kind of set off any embers, so to speak? You know, because you've got not in the south, we're in the north. Did that just be like, oh, wow, this is a big phenomenon that's just really happening everywhere now? Well, it it did. It was one of those things of like, in terms of um, motivating incremental change. Yes, it certainly did that. It didn't change things necessarily overnight. As I said, the lo- it was a huge disappointment in many people's eyes, especially among jurists, that Orange County, New York, and New York itself failed to, to not only protect Robert Lewis, but then to also prosecute his killers. Um, that So afterward, there was kind of a a walking away from the case in a certain way. Um, there was a lot of regret and shame that 
the community and the state of New York had not been able to follow through and really do what was right. Perhaps the most interesting thing, though, is that that very month, uh, a woman named Ida B. Wells, who was a black journalist from Memphis and who had just been driven. Yeah, Ida. Yeah, she had just been driven out of her community for her writing against lynching. Uh, She had basically written in her paper in Memphis that lynching was based on a bunch of nonsense or not nonsense, but rather like a lie that that black men were assaulting white women. And she she came out and said, look, if white men aren't careful, uh, they'll be you know, they're going to end up sort of disparaging uh, their own women. What she meant was that a lot of these relationships that were so offensive to white men were consensual, consensual relationships between black men and white women. And indeed, Ida B. Wells, who came to New York then, she couldn't go home and began writing about lynching for the New York Age, which was then the most prominent black newspaper in America. She uh, opined that what had happened in Port Jervis was that Lena McMahon and Robert Lewis had a romantic relationship and that the white boyfriend learned of it and had had threatened to expose her. And so that that had been sort of led to all this this trouble. Now, we don't know. I don't know if Ida B. Wells, we don't know if she ever actually went there herself. Um, And it's just speculation on her part as well. Of course, she had a lot of experience in these matters, so she might have read this situation correctly. What's interesting is there there were, though, in that same year, though, it's interesting because all this occurred within the same two week period or so. But around the same time, there were the first kind of national resolutions passed uh, even by signed by like leading pol- the president and leading politicians, the governor of New York against lynching. So this was it was beginning just then it was already emerging kind of as a national concern. Uh, and so the Port Jervis lynching then arrived at that very it happened at that very moment. So, of course, that just did, that tended to also push it toward the up into the kind of the news of the day. And, you know, there were articles coming from California, from the South. Uh, Of course, many in the South, white voices were sort of gleeful, almost like, see, look, you're, you're, you talk big, but when, when this kind of crime, you know, sexual crime, alleged sexual crime occurs in your neighborhood, you react the same way we do. So stop, you know, they, in other words, basically, you know, this happened during the civil rights movement too. Like, you know, who are you to criticize, basically? Um, so one interest, one thing worth pointing out is that the Port Jervis lynching occurred about a generation before the NAACP came into being and the work of Ida B. Wells also and other people began to foster the idea that we needed to hear the black side of lynching stories because once that occurred, then suddenly lynchings, what had actually occurred, what had brought on a lynching, who was involved and so on, suddenly became many, many different, a much more involved narrative. And that's what was missing during the Port Jervis. At that time, all we have really is the voices of the white newspapers at the time. There is, except from like just sort of reading the tea leaves, it's very hard to know how the local black community responded, what they would have said about the incident, maybe, you know, their explanation might have been something completely different as what that is what happened years later when the NAACP and other organizations began researching 
going into communities after lynching and really trying to find out what happened from everybody that often would turn out to be some aspect of it that completely belied the, the, the white version of events. Right. And it's, you know, it's so just phenomenal that Ida B. Wells, you know, with her experience and what she was trying to do and the things that she was saying, and she really brought a lot of attention to lynchings, you know, her anti-lynching campaign that she embarked on both domestically and, um, across the Atlantic, it was highly successful at bringing attention to the issue of lynching and what it was. And that, as you say, there is often more to the story um, that's going on. So it's just, you know, it's really phenomenal that she had the connection also during this time to this particular case that happened here. Yeah, no, she, you know, you're right. She really, for many, you know, she, as I mentioned in the book, she was, kind of all by herself, really, for a while, given the overwhelming nature of this of this barbaric crime, uh, that she was one of the first people to really speak out and do something about it, to go around and lecture. As you point out, she made two trips to Britain, hoping to, and she, she succeeded in arousing sympathy among the English public, who then in turn began to write and contact their counterparts in America and urge some kind of reform and so on. And so, I mean, that's a whole different story in that in the, at that time, British opinion was very influential in the United States. And so Frederick Douglass had done something similar and many other reformers had as well, which was to go to England, try to arouse concern there, which could then be leveraged against institutions and, you know, authority figures here in the U.S. and opinion makers as well. So that's what Ida B. Wells was up to. And she really dedicated much of her life to that struggle. That she did. And so I want to ask, you know, the looking at the concept concept of this happening in part Jarvis, is it anywhere else, you know, outside of the, you know, quote unquote, the South. This is not just a Southern phenomenon. So were there other areas where these lynchings are occurring during this period? Because that's something I really enjoyed about the book was that it took it, you know, the spotlight away from the South. So I'm to say, no, this is not just a Southern phenomenon that it's occurring. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, There were other lynchings in the North and they occurred, for instance, there was one in 1911 in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Uh, there were some in, uh, there was an incident in Duluth, far north Duluth, Minnesota in 1920. Um, and various other lynchings occurred in Ohio and in Indiana and so forth, northern Indiana. Um, the, it took a long, long time for there to be a sense that, uh, and there was the South was because of the abundance of lynchings were occurring there for many, many years, of course, was considered the place where lynch law really was uh, an issue that was a towering problem and needed to be confronted, perhaps largely because, uh, or somewhat because, uh, the South is where there, the spectacle lynchings, for which lynching became very notorious, uh, for the most part, occurred in the South. And by a spectacle lynching, I mean a lynching that is attended by a large body of the public 
and is is often planned and actually turned into a kind of picnic like affair or yes. even even a kind of like a like a religious revival in other words these were enormous gatherings sometimes as many as 10,000 people um special trains would be uh sent from you know uh, excursion trains from Atlanta or Chattanooga or Charleston to some rural community where a lynching was about to take place the newspaper and there were children Children. children, families, everyone. It was considered almost like, well, you, of course you would bring the family because this was something everybody, the community was involved. It was a community event. And, um, and, and it was something the newspapers were complicit with in that they would actually say that, well, there's, you know, there's no room in the jail or, you know, some euphemism, so-and-so will be, and it would become known public notice really that a lynching was to occur in a small town like uh, Texarkana or someplace outside Dallas or wherever it might be. And a crowd would, would come. And so those kind of events certainly lent a lot of the notoriety to Southern lynchings that they, that they deserved. Right. And that is so true. It was a spectacle on epic proportions and how they created those. And so I want to ask you, so what happens, you know, after the lynching is done, Robert Lewis has been murdered. What happens to Lena and Philip? What do they do? Uh, Well, um, first of all, Robert Lewis was, you know, himself, the one way in which the black community of Port Jervis did react in a way that was is known is that the initial the town initially thought to bury Robert Lewis in like a local pauper's graveyard the black community rose up and said no you're not going to do that because you've already you've done such horrible things so far we want him to have a proper funeral and they they raised money amongst themselves and I believe the city of Port Jervis also chipped in to see that he received a proper funeral and he was buried in the town's uh, scenic, uh, sort of scenic park-like cemetery, which is on a peninsula out in the Delaware River. But that was done because the black community insisted on it. Um, As far as Lena McMahon, she spent many weeks recovering from the assault on her, which has been described... um, in various, in other words, her her injuries have been described as everything from not much at all to life threatening, depending on whose account you're reading. Um, and you know, the doctors who was attending her often gave very inflammatory reports of how she was doing. You know, she can't sleep. She's taking. We have to give her laudanum. She's you know, quote, sees the Negro in her dreams, which was a common trope among these kind of cases, you often heard that the idea that the, the young white victim of the alleged sexual assault was almost, you know, near death in terms of just trying to even recover psychologically from what had occurred. Now, not to diminish that those attacks ever did occur. I'm sure some did, but that type of, there was a kind of hyperbole that often occurred in the press and I'm sure reporters also added to that, even where a doctor would not comply um, to kind of, you know, escalate a description of what a person had endured and suffered. But she wound up 
she really never quite recovered from it, I don't think. And her family acknowledged that much as well. She basically, a few years later, she wound up in New York City. She had a stillbirth in a hotel she had checked into, which then led her to be uh, put sent to Bellevue, actually, uh, where she spent several weeks. Her mother came down from Port Jervis. They eventually brought her home. And eventually the whole McMahon family moved back. They originally from Boston. They eventually moved back there. They just got out of it. They couldn't, it was hard for them to remain in Port Jervis. I mean, to be honest, I often, th- I, uh, my own speculation about the case uh, is that Lena herself was kind of the somewhat the driver of the events, that uh, she was running away from home. I think she was desperate to, I don't know, we don't really know what she had in mind, whether she just wanted attention, maybe she wanted her parents to feel sorry for her. I suspect somehow that there was a kind of a charade involved, that she staged some of this or, or at least uh, exaggerated it in a way without thinking herself the enormous what would actually occur. In other words, that I don't know what she expected to happen, but I don't think she she could not have anticipated that this would become this her entire the town where she lived would erupt into this enormous tragic and barbaric event, which would then bring about the castigation from the entire nation. I mean, this would have been well beyond her imagination, I think. And I think that's what, when the doctors and everyone said she's mixed up, she's recovering, of course, they acted, they said, oh, it's because of what she endured with this assault on her. But I suspect it was because of what she felt she had done. I think she felt you know, sort of driven mad by it, that her actions, which I think were involving her love affair with Philip and her anger at her parents, and somehow this acting out had led to this incident with a man, Robert Lewis, who she may or may not have known. We don't know for sure. Just, I think that's what it was. It was that crushing realization that she had brought this on, this enormous catastrophe, basically. And so, they did move away eventually, and she became last. I know she was a music teacher. They, the census uh, in Boston, I think in around 1910, she was teaching music up in Boston. She passed away not too long after that, I don't think. I don't think she lived a long time. But um, as to Philip Foley, he was, he was put in jail, actually, in Orange County, at first for his own protection, uh, because, of course, there was people who wanted to kill him, too, because they felt that he had been this. Somehow they understood in some way that they was not maybe totally articulated by anybody that he had sort of brought this all about because he had he was a stranger in town. He'd come. He was kind of a fancy dude. He had, you know, chatted up one of their a, a young woman from the town and kind of misled her and exposed her to things that she should, you know, that he did not protect her, act in her interests. At the same time, he was professing love for her and saying he wanted to marry her. Um, So he was considered a kind of no-goodnik, and they eventually just found reasons to keep him in jail. They claimed he had been trying to blackmail the family, which he denied. Um, But long story short, he did eventually, when he was released, uh, he hung around for a while. He made himself unwelcome and basically... They eventually, they 
someone paid his bail, I think one of his brothers or something, and he just disappeared. And no one ever bothered to try to bring him back. I think they were just so, the county and the town of Port Jervis, they were so glad to be rid of him eventually after several months of not only the lynching, of course, but also the enduring, the articles and the case being rehearsed over and over again in the press. I mean, one aspect of this, of course, and this is true of a lot of towns where these incidents occur, is that the enduring shame and the the acknowledgement that your town, the very name of your town is associated with this horrendous act of intolerance um, is, is something that does not, it, it hurts more and more as time goes on. And so the Port Jervians were very eager at a certain point to be put this in the past and move ahead, move on. And so getting rid of Philip Foley was a, a welcome change. I can imagine they just wanted to, you know, put that incident that had, you know, very, very severe uh, ramifications. Robert Lewis, he lost his life behind them if they could, if they could just kind of like blot that out and we just never talk about it. It happened. It's done. Let's just, we're not, we just want to get rid of all any type of remnants of what happened. Um, And Foley, he would have been yet another reminder of that, but it's just, you know, it's so... As a person who has lived in a town where an event occurred, and I'm sure you'll know this, um, Mobile, Alabama. Uh, yes, Michael Donaldson. Uh, so, you know, I understand, you know, that mentality of, you know, trying to distance yourself from that um, and what that event meant, especially, you know, because Donaldson, he was so much later. That was, you know, 1980s when sure, that actually sure. no, I remember that, that incident. Right. Yeah. Well, of course, it's in Port, like recent. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, in Port Jervis's case, there too, there was the kind of compounding impact of the fact that in the 19th, uh, the um, later in the, uh, I should say in the 20th century, the town itself uh, suffered a number of economic setbacks. The railroad left the Erie Railroad, which had once used it as its site of its repair shops, closed down there. Uh, the canal, of course, was closed and cemented over. Uh, the interstate highway passed the town by, so there was no longer any people just driving through the town. So you can imagine, uh, you know, it was a 19th century town that had once been quite prosperous, but now was kind of on hard times. And so I think the idea that, in other words, it, it was a place that did not, it had a lot that it wanted to forget and move on. And I think the lynching of Robert Lewis was one of those things. Um, and you know, that I'm sure it's fairly, you know, the dust of history settles very quickly over things. Um, and if one, if one generation doesn't talk about it, then the next generation has never heard of it and then on and on. And so you uh, eventually a kind of silence, uh, you know, comes to be. And, And, you know, that's kind of what I found when I first went there was it just very little, awareness of it, very little interest in talking about it and so on. And maybe that's true of a lot of different places where these kind of things have taken place. Only agree with that assessment. But, you know, in your book, you mentioned there's a very famous um, literary scholar, um, Stephen Crane, who has ties. So can you share like how the Crane family is tied to the lynching of Robert Lewis? No, that's an interesting, interesting um, 
sidebar is that one of the I mentioned that there were some heroic people who did try to save Robert Lewis, and one of them was a local judge named William Crane, uh, who was the older brother of Stephen Crane, the famous novelist who wrote the book The Red Badge of Courage. In fact, I mentioned earlier that Port Jervis was a town that had a lot of Civil War veterans in it. And of course, Stephen Crane was not old enough to be in the Civil War, but he apparently from just growing up in this town, hearing all the stories of the the veterans, he put together this book. You know, Red Badge of Courage is an incredible, it's considered one of the greatest books about the Civil War, yet written by someone who never saw it, was not there. But that's because he kind of was immersed in the in the memory of it growing up in Port Jervis. Um, but his um, he was not there on the day of the lynching. He had been there the week before. But of course, he heard about his brother's exploits. And of course, his brother was then singled out in the town and warned about cooperating with with you know, justice, basically. And he sort of did and didn't a little bit. I mean, William Crane, he he testified against some of the people he knew to take who had taken part. Uh, but then later he kind of backed off a little bit and uh, maybe he saw the, the sort of like, you know, futility of trying to actually bring these people to justice. But Stephen Crane, the younger brother uh, was much taken with this account and uh he did not write about it right away, but lynching became a kind of like mob violence and lynching became a kind of motif in Stephen Crane's work. It surfaces in several of his short stories. And eventually for the, you know, he died very young, uh, Stephen Crane. He was not even 30, um, but his last work turned out to be this interesting novella called The Monster. And what it is, it's set in a small town, which is Port Jervis, basically, and it concerns, it's a kind of allegory of the lynching story because it's not about a lynching literally, but it's about a popular young black man who lives in the town. He's a coachman. He works for a wealthy doctor. Uh, he's a, well known in the community. Uh, he has a, a fiance. He He's someone who is kind of, you know, looked up to uh, by many people. There's the son of the doctor is very, uh, they're very much good friends and so on. Uh, but what happened is there's a fire in the doctor's laboratory and the young boy is endangered and the black coachman runs into the house and rescues the boy, saving his life, but in doing so is disfigured himself terribly by the chemicals that were in the doctor's laboratory. Well, he then becomes a kind of pariah in the town because even though people think of him as a hero, they don't want him around because he's, he's horrible to encounter. Uh, he frightens people by his appearance. Uh, he begins to act kind of strangely because he's being so shunned and also enduring this kind of lingering physical rehabilitation from his burns and injuries. And he becomes, and of course, Stevens Crane use of the term the monster is itself. He's doing that on purpose because monster was the term that was often applied to black men accused of sexual crimes, even in Robert Lewis case, you know, the monster, a monstrous assault and so on, the black monster and so on. And that was kind of a, a journalistic trope of the era. So Stephen Crane is taking that, but then applying it, turning into kind of like a gothic horror story in a way about 
a hideous person in a community. I don't want to give it all away because I think I'd love to encourage your listeners to pick up this novella. It's yes. really worth reading, but it's all about how the town deals with this question. What do we do with this person? And of course, some of the solutions offered are not very kind. And those people who defend him, you know, at one point, the doctor whose son was saved says, what do you, what can you expect me to do? I cannot bring harm to this man because of all he's done for me. Whereas his fellow citizens are like, well, but still you can't, he can't stay here. He frightens the women, he frightens the children and so on and so on. So it's how a small town deals with these issues of intolerance and, and, and so on. And I recommend it. I'll say no more. <laughs> but but yes. it's also what's interesting about it too, is that it's an interesting considering that the Robert Louis lynching itself was so little documented and talked about for many, many years. Stephen Crane's short story, The Allegory, becomes in a way a kind of literary representation of it. It's like literature telling us history through this sort of story that is much kind of contorted in a certain way and yet is really telling the same story. In fact, even some of the characters in the monster, even the novella, are recognizable as like Lena McMahon. In other words, you know, a young Irish woman <laughs> flees in terror, whatever it would be. It's kind of very recognizable that this is the very community that we're talking about. And so um, it that is an interest. I, I, that is the last chapter in the book that I wrote. And it's kind of itself an interesting coda on this entire history and how it's remembered, I think. I want to ask you, do you think that Robert Lewis, was there ever justice for him? Well, I mean, of course, no, really. I mean, he, um, you know, he was a promising young man in a way. He was an avid fisherman. He liked to go ice skating on the canal. He had this ambition to go to New York. He wanted to sail, go out, get a job on an ocean going ship. He had plans. Uh, his father had been a very well liked, uh, actually, a black Civil War veteran who lived in Port Jervis, who was a very popular man, who was like quoted in a lot of the newspapers of the 1880s. Uh, they quote uh, uh, Robert Lewis's father as, you know, what's your opinion of what's, he was someone who was kind of a raconteur, told stories and was well-liked. And so his son was well-known as well. And yeah, we don't know. Um, and of course, his life was cut short. He had no chance then to pursue these interests. And so in that way, he no, he never did receive justice. The only thing I'll say is that, of course, it's been for what it's worth in some small way, the last few years have been, you know, we've seen Robert Lewis, the town of Port Jervis knows his story now and knows who he was. His image appears on a mural that's down at the local railroad station. I never would have thought I'd ever see that in a million years when I first went there. But, and, you know, as I said, it's the students in the local high school study his story. Um, I'm actually going this weekend. There's going to be like a tour. People are coming from Pennsylvania to go on like a tour of Port Jervis and visit various civil rights related sites. And of course, the site of the lynching of Robert Lewis and people will be learning and talking about his story. And so in that way, there is a kind of historical acknowledgement, I guess you might say, a commemoration. Um, 
I think what would be, you know, what would be great to see, and of course, people are working on this in Port Jervis, is that perhaps the greatest tribute to Robert Lewis would be that if the town could develop more better relations, in other words, the town has historically suffered from kind of a, uh, not having the most kind of like uh, evolved, like community relationships, I don't think among different factors of the community. And I think that would be great to see if it was possible that this, even the commemoration of this terrible incident would somehow help to foster dialogue and more uh, getting together, basically, uh, among the different disparate groups who now live in Port Jervis. Yeah, I think that would be something that would be nice, you know, for this horrific event to actually, you know, bring people together X amount of years later. So I want to ask you, you know, as, and you alluded to this earlier, do you see kind of like any contemporary reparations as to what happened um, at Port Jarvis? You mean reparations? In other words, like actions that would be... Yes, yes. Um, I think that's actually going on throughout the Hudson Valley in New York right now. In other words, there's been this kind of the the acknowledgement of... There was a lynch, not only the lynching of Robert Lewis, but there was another lynching that occurred in Newburgh, New York, during the Civil War of a man named Robert Mulliner. And both of those lynchings have now been acknowledged and commemorated by the state of New York with plaques and that sort of thing. And it's, it's become, these are topics that are taught and shared by the communities, but much larger than that, it's the idea that the Hudson Valley and New York itself was very much a slave society during the colonial era up until the early 19th century is something that was not well known. And that kind of corresponds to the idea that of my book, which was that, oh, here was something that happened in the North and everyone was so surprised. It's also come as a surprise I think, to a lot of New Yorkers that New York was a very large, uh, the, the number of enslaved people in New York City and state was quite large at the time. Um, and so I've done several talks up in the Hudson Valley where other people who come talk about the other aspects of this same phenomenon, which is that there was the huge underground railroads presence in New York State, uh, the number of enslaved people from the Dutch times forward into the, the early American Republic, uh, and so on. And so that there's been a kind of an awakening, I think, if anything, a reparation. Um, you know, there's a new end of Lacey P chapter that just formed in Orange County, where Port Jervis is. Um, and I just see it from events I go to. I see a much larger acknowledgement and recognition among people, both black and white, of this past of enslavement, of fugitives, you know, f runaway slaves being pursued by slave hunters, that sort of thing. Um, the, uh, you know, racial violence of one kind or another, the New York draft riots of 1863, which very much involved uh, kind of a racial issue involving, again, the resistance to in, uh, being conscripted into the fighting the Civil War and so on. So a much broader kind of acknowledgement of that. I don't know how, uh, you know, it's hard to say how extensive it is. I definitely notice it. But um, that has been one turning point that I think, and also it has been urged on a bit, I think, by Black Lives Matter, 
something like the 1619 Project, as you know, um, you know, the huge lynching memorial that Brian Stevenson helped open down in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, a few years ago, which if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth a visit. Um, all of those things work together to kind of push this information of this history forward. Of course, ironically, it comes at a time when, as you know, there are many people who are trying to repress that very history. Yes. <laughs> and so that's, that's the downside. Yeah. So it's this fascinating, fascinating thing, really, in a way, is that while just as this is becoming partly through, of course, social media and a lot of the Internet and so on, a lot of this information is becoming more widely known. This history, Ameri- you know, and, you know, black history is American history. Uh, anyone who works in that field will tell you that. And so the yeah, very idea that that is the history we need to we need to, you know, qu- you know, quell or silence and not share with other a younger generation and so on seems uh, hopefully uh, unworkable, really. Ultimately, I don't think I don't think that will happen. I think knowledge of this sort is too powerful and will manage to come out somehow or other. But but no, it's distressing to see the efforts that are made to kind of push back against disseminating this information. Which is so important because, as you say, you know, even for many of the residents of Fort Jarvis, they had that silence around the incidents. They were unaware of the history of what happened in their towns. They had no idea. And that doesn't it doesn't benefit anyone um, to actually silence some of the voices that are actually the most powerful. No, I um, couldn't agree more. I think the silence itself is a kind of, it's always there. You know, you might think, yes, there's silence about it, but it doesn't go away. And, you know, I like to think there's actually a bit of a kind of urban renewal going on in Port Jervis now. I think they're building a new hotel and so on. And I don't know, I kind of think in a way that these things go hand in hand, like actual social economic renewal can be kind of tied to this awakening and this willingness to acknowledge one's past. Um, however uncomfortable it might make one, uh, it's still worth going down that road. And I do think it has a kind of broadening and, and ultimately kind of uplifting effect in the end, actually. I agree. So if I was going to ask you, which I am going to ask you now, what do you want readers to take away from the book? Um, oh, this, um, gosh, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I think probably the most, you know, the most important message of the book really, which is sort of obvious from the title is the, just the fact that how much this, this is everywhere. In other words, that this, intolerance, the ease with which intolerance can become brutal, lethal violence is not restricted to any one place or part of the country, but is really among all of us. And the sooner that we learn to acknowledge it and recognize it and uh, hopefully transform it uh, will be for the better. I guess in a nutshell, that's sort of the message of the book. Even the title, A Lynching at Port Jervis, was a headline, and it, it in its day, it was a kind of, oh, <laughs> uh, that was a startling, a startling declaration, basically. Uh, and so that's kind of the message. Of- 
I know. I mean, it's a phenomenal book. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Dre, to discuss it. Thanks a lot, Katrina, for having me. I enjoyed it. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of A Lynching at Port Jarvis. I assure you, you will not regret it. It is so well written and it sheds light on a topic that most often remains sadly relevant in 2023. But, and it also, you know, you get this look at, you know, the historical racial violence that occurs in America's history. So it is well-written, as I said. And once you start reading, you can't put it down. I could not. I stayed up reading the book until 2 a.m. because I kind of needed to know what direction it was going to go. So I urge you listeners, please go out and pick up a copy. It is on sale now.